Hello, and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and this episode serves as the outro to my interview with Tolan Lee Joy, episode 60. This episode is called Globalism versus Self-Governance, How David Defeats Goliath. In my conversation with Tolan, we discussed the polarization of the American public. In this outro, I dive further into this division and argue that our current political split is not one of Republican versus Democrat, but rather one of globalism versus self-governance. Part one of this outro begins by defining the globalist threat and how the globalists have infiltrated American media through the CIA. I first highlight the mainstream media oligopoly, the six media conglomerates which control 90% plus of the film, television, and print content distributed. I next highlight the role elitist organizations like the Council on Foreign Relations have played in the destruction of our free press. Next, I highlight BlackRock, its CEO Larry Fink, and the role played by the asset management cartel in consolidating power for the globalists. I then discuss Operation Mockingbird, a CIA program to infiltrate the media, which was declassified during the 1970s Church Committee hearings and which continues to this day. I highlight the ongoing lies perpetuated by the mainstream media with the case study of ivermectin, the miracle drug labeled as a horse dewormer by the Mockingbird media during the pandemic. I then provide evidence that Anderson Cooper is acting as an agent of the CIA with investigative journalism from Luke Rudkowski of We Are Change and testimony from German reporter Udo of Kulte. I next discuss the role the CIA has played in Silicon Valley since its infancy, then dive into specific examples of the big tech oligopoly's corruption. First, we discuss Microsoft and its founders slash robber barons Bill Gates and Paul Allen. I then highlight Reid Hoffman, LinkedIn, and the elitist organization Bilderberg Group. Part one of the outro concludes as we consider DARPA, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, and the disturbing prevalence of child sexual abuse material on Meta's platforms. Part two, episode 62, begins with a discussion of the PayPal Mafia, Palantir, and its founders Peter Thiel and Alex Karp. I then highlight the corruption and censorship rampant at Google and supported by its founders slash executives, Sergey Brin, Larry Page, and Eric Schmidt. I then discuss the Jeffrey Epstein-funded Edge Foundation and the evidence the Edge annual billionaires dinners were used by Epstein as an influence slash blackmail operation to extend his human trafficking network into Silicon Valley. The discussion on Silicon Valley and the CIA wraps as I highlight Twitter slash X, Jack Dorsey, Elon Musk, and Disney. The outro ends with an appeal to Kasatria, the spirit of the cosmic warrior. Historically, we viewed politics through the lens of the two-party system. Republican versus Democrat, or in the present-day hyperbole of the corporate media, Nazi maga-fascists versus communist leftist tyrants. And while both Nazism and communism have played important underestimated roles in shaping our current political environment, the vast majority of the American public want nothing to do with either. The reason our political discourse has become so distorted is not because of the false dialectic between Team Red Shirt versus Team Blue Shirt. Rather, the political juncture we face today is one of globalism versus self-governance. As I've consistently argued, the establishment of both major political parties, aka the Uniparty, has fallen victim to corporate capture and blackmail by organized crime. To quote independent presidential candidate and defender of self-governance, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Big oil funds the Republicans. Big tech funds the Democrats. 
Big Pharma and the military contractors make sure to give to both. Instead of two parties, we have this kind of uniparty, a, a two-headed monster that's constantly bickering with itself as it leads us all over a cliff. And, and at the bottom of that cliff is the destruction of our country. Neither party has offered any kind of meaningful resistance to the endless wars that have sucked dry our wealth and slaughtered our youth. Neither has done anything to reverse the erosion of the American middle class. Both of them are powerless to raid in our exploding deficits. They have contributed equally to the corporate giveaways, to the corruption in Washington, and to the erection of a surveillance state. Today, I want to double-click on Kennedy's comments regarding big tech and their influence on the American public, specifically Democratic Party loyalists. The social media oligopoly, following in the footsteps of the corporate media oligopoly, has always been controlled by a transnational cabal. This cabal includes many of the most powerful, wealthy elites in the world. We often refer to this organization as the Deep State, and yes, it is real. The leaders of the Deep State are the puppet masters behind the threat of globalism, one-world government, and permanent police state. Media and the CIA Corruption in the United States has become systemically entrenched, largely due to the Deep State's control of corporate and social media. When the mainstream media in 2016 started flooding the airwaves with anti-Trump propaganda, many Republicans started to question whether these journalists were reporting the truth or whether they were lying in service to other masters. That awakening process accelerated following the COVID-19 pandemic as mainstream journalists' deceit became clearer and big tech's censorship became more aggressive. The one group of Americans who have yet to awaken en masse to the reality of media and tech capture are the Democratic Party loyalists. As a former member of this tribe, I say the following to my fellow Americans with love. The DNC and their corporate media partners have traumatized you to fear the QAnon cult, when in reality, the real risk comes from Blue Anon. The risk comes from those who exhibit blind party loyalty in spite of the compounding evidence that the DNC and the representatives in the media have betrayed all of the principles they claimed to represent. Principles including peace over endless wars, protecting the poor over corporations, and the defense of civil liberties, bodily autonomy, and meritocracy. This is because both the mainstream media conglomerates and Silicon Valley have always been controlled by deep state factions buried within intelligence agencies. Mainstream media oligopoly. Americans have been taught that we have a free and open press as guaranteed by the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. Yet today, six media conglomerates, National Amusements, Disney, Warner Brothers Discovery, Comcast, News Corp, and Sony controlled 90% of the media produced in America. On Substack, I've included an infographic which shows the various media platforms owned by these companies, which have been run by tycoons including Sumner Redstone, Bob Iger, Jeff Bukes, Brian Roberts, Rupert Murdoch, and Kaz Hirai, respectively. Some of these media outlets include, first, National Amusements, BET, CBS, MTV, Nickelodeon, Paramount Pictures, and Showtime. Two, Disney, ABC, A&E, ESPN, History Channel, Lucasfilm, Marvel, Vice, and Walt Disney Studios. Three, Warner Brothers Discovery, Cartoon Network, CNN, CW, HBO, TBS, and Warner Brothers Studios. Four, Comcast, 
Bravo, CNBC, MSNBC, NBC, Universal Studios, and The Weather Channel. 5. News Corp, 20th Century Fox, Box, Fox News, FX, HarperCollins Publishers, The Wall Street Journal, and National Geographic. And 6. Sony, Sony and Sony Pictures. Elitist Organizations and Council on Foreign Relations. High-ranking executives, producers, and reporters from these media juggernauts are often hand-selected from elitist think tanks and transatlantic organizations like the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, and the Bilderberg Group. Unelected member societies funded for decades by elite crime families including the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers, and the Dutch and British royal families. On Substack, I've included a graphic showing the infiltration of the major media and tech corporations by these three elitist organizations. I'll cover the Bilderberg Group in detail later in this outro. To dive a bit further on the Council on Foreign Relations, Eustace Mullins highlighted the following in his book, The World Order, Our Secret Rulers. Although the reparations clauses in the Treaty of Versailles achieved the desired results of forcing Germany to fight a second world war, the primary result was the formation of a new front world government, the League of Nations, the predecessor to the United Nations, which, in the background, the conspirators established the real governing body, the World Order, through the Royal Institute of International Affairs, RIIA, also known as Chatham House, and its American subsidiary, the Council on Foreign Relations. The members of the Council on Foreign Relations transmit orders to our government officials from the RIIA and the House of Rothschild in London. It is true that the CFR comprises a ruling elite in the United States, but they are merely colonial governors absolutely responsible to their overseers in the world order. Not only do they transmit orders to the White House, the Cabinet, the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, and other governmental institutions, but they also maintain absolute control of the foundations whose duty it is to formulate policy or organize it in acceptable form to be transmitted to the government. Shoup's Imperial Brain Trust, 1969, notes that the CFR includes 22 trustees of the Brookings Institution, 29 at Rand, 14 at Hudson, 33 at Middle East Institute, 14 of 19 trustees at the Rockefeller Foundation, 10 of 17 at Carnegie, 7 of 16 at Ford Foundation, 6 of 11 at Rockefeller Brothers Fund. This proves that the CFR runs these major foundations. In the academic world, CFR members number 58 on the faculty at Princeton, 69 at the University of Chicago, and 30 at Harvard. Of the banks which are the principal owners of Federal Reserve Bank stock, directors of Chase include 7 CFR members, 8 at J.P. Morgan, 7 at First National City, now Citigroup, 6 at Chemical Bank, and 6 at Brown Brothers Harriman. The Rothschilds ruled the U.S. through their foundations, the Council on Foreign Relations, and the Federal Reserve System with no serious challenges to their power. Expensive political campaigns are routinely conducted with carefully screened candidates who are pledged to the program of the world order. Should they deviate from the program, they would have an accident, be framed on a sex charge, or indicted on some financial irregularity. The world order rules because it conceals its power. It denies that it exists. Although its power is obvious everywhere, in the government, in education, in the religious orders, in the wars and revolutions and famines, which are so meticulously planned and executed, the world order, like the mafia, refuses to acknowledge its own existence. Its subsidiaries come and go, but the order remains constant. When too many people discover the Council on Foreign Relations, power is moved to the Bilderbergers or the Trilateral Commission. The order's control remains constant. End quote. 
In addition to these think tanks and elitist organizations, the largest shareholders of the media oligopoly are also controlled by intelligence and organized crime. On Substack, I've included a chart that shows the top shareholders for the four U.S.-based public media conglomerates. All of them have Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street as three of their five largest shareholders. These three asset management firms are three of the largest in almost all of the 1,000 largest public companies in the world. BlackRock and Larry Fink The largest of these asset management firms is BlackRock, which is over $9.4 trillion under management. For perspective, only the United States and China have GDPs larger than that, giving BlackRock and the rest of the asset management cartel incredible power in shaping global regulations. BlackRock's CEO Larry Fink is coincidentally also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission, an honor shared by serial pedophile and human trafficker Jeffrey Epstein. Fink is also on the board of trustees for the globalist organization the World Economic Forum, run by psychopath Klaus Schwab. Is Fink a man deserving of the unbelievable power that comes with managing and deploying over $9 trillion worth of assets? Or is he emblematic of President Eisenhower's warning that the potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist? Here's what Fink had to say about how BlackRock uses its influence to force behaviors. It's an investment criteria for you. Well, behaviors are going to have to change, and this is one thing we're, going to, we're asking companies. Uh, you have to force behaviors, and at BlackRock we are forcing behaviors. Uh, 54% of the incoming class are women. We, we added four more points in terms of diverse uh, employment this year. And it, if it, it, you know, what we are doing internally is if you don't achieve these levels of impact, it, your compensation could be impacted, okay? We're doing the same thing. And so it's just, it, you have to force behaviors. And if you don't force behaviors, whether it's gender or race, or just any way you want to say the composition of your team, you're going to be impacted. And that's not just not recruiting. It is development, as Ken said. And ultimately, it's still going to take time, but I am just as much shocked as Ken is that we have not seen more opportunities. And we're going to have to force change. BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard have also been the asset management firms responsible for the massive rise in housing prices through their use of real estate private equity funds, snatching single-family homes away from American families. The skyrocketing costs to rent or buy housing, coupled with disastrous COVID-19 lockdown policies, have directly resulted in the homelessness crisis we see today in America. Remember how I mentioned that communism plays an important, underestimated role in our current political environment? Karl Marx's communist manifesto can be summarized with the ultimate goals of A, abolition of private property, and B, destruction of the nuclear family. The homelessness crisis is not coincidence, it is by design. These asset management firms have also been leading the charge in forcing their portfolio companies to adopt virtuous-sounding ESG, environmental, societal, and governance, and DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. In reality, these serve as Trojan horses to usher in social credit scores, cashless slash central bank digital currency-based economies, and authoritarian controls by the corporatocracy. Operation Mockingbird. Returning now to the corporate media oligopoly. The cabal's control of media has been present since the beginning of media. With the advent of motion pictures, their ability to control public psychology through propaganda accelerated. 
Here is a clip from the documentary Out of Shadows, highlighting the history of media and entertainment and the media's infiltration by secret police agencies through Operation Mockingbird. I cannot recommend this documentary highly enough for those who want to know the truth about propaganda, media, and entertainment capture, and the true story behind the 2016 Pizzagate scandal. For those of you who don't know who Kevin Shipp is, he's a CIA whistleblower, he uh, worked in counterintelligence, and he served in many capacities in his tenure at the CIA. This is the big picture. An official television report to the nation from the United States Army. It was an OSS memo, the precursor of the CIA, where they were doing a study of the use of motion pictures in America as a means of psychological warfare. So it goes all the way back to pre-1947 when U.S. intelligence was, was using motion pictures uh, to alter the thinking of Americans in the United States. The morale of our troops is high. The laughter, music, and general entertainment, which comes out of a single small package like this one, have helped to build that morale. The CIA is funneling information into Hollywood. Hollywood is putting out, out in the movies, and the population believes it. Texas. This document right here is a FOIA document. Anybody in America, anybody can request this. It's Freedom Information Act. And in the 40s, they were telling you they controlled the radio stations. They controlled most of the mainstream media. They're telling you right here that motion pictures are used as psychological warfare. Why would they stop doing it? At no time has the CIA engaged in any political activity or any intelligence activity that was not approved at the highest level. Alan Dulles groomed and recruited Ian Fleming, and Dulles and the CIA actually helped Fleming write his books and paint the CIA in a favorable light. And they also, Dulles helped produce Thunderball to make the CIA and agents look like honorable, you know, cool people. The CIA actually helped him write the books and write the script for that movie. And then the president of MPAA was actually providing intelligence to the CIA as an operative in, in that position in Hollywood. Mr. Fleming, in your books there's a great amount of detail. Is this detail based on personal experience? Uh, do you make it up? Where does it come from? Well, uh, I can say it's 90% from personal experience, really. Of course, I, if I started sticking too close to the espionage, true espionage work of today, I should be in trouble with the Official Secrets Act in England, even supposing I had access to information. There's no question about the fact that Mockingbird is real. It started out paying journalists in major media, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists, to print fake stories uh, that the CIA wanted in the press and fake interviews. And this was revealed in the Church Committee. Do you have any people being paid by the CIA 
who are contributing to a major circulation American journal. We do have people who submit pieces to other two American journals. And of course, then the CIA destroyed the rest of the files, which is what they do. George H.W. Bush came out and finally made the statement about Mockingbird. Well, we're going to officially stop the Mockingbird program. The CIA will no longer pay journalists to write stories. From now on, the program is voluntary, which means Mockingbird continues today. When's the last time you've seen a mainstream media outlet do a serious investigative report on the actions of the CIA? There's a reason for that. This would mean that the CIA could manipulate the news in the United States by channeling it through some foreign country. And we're looking at that very carefully. Would you say that continues today? Well, I, yeah, I would think probably for a reporter it would continue today, but because of all of the revelations of the period of the 1970s, uh, it seems to me that a reporter's got to be much more circumspect in doing it now, or he runs the risk of uh, at least being looked at with considerable disfavor by the public. I think you've got to be much more careful about it. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. 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 These media parrots are absolutely correct. Operation Mockingbird is extremely dangerous to our democracy. If these legacy media journalists do not care about the public, if they blatantly disregard the truth, whose interests are they serving? And for what ends? Ivermectin, horse dewormer, or miracle drug. The Mockingbird media's lies were exemplified by their pandemic coverage of the drug Ivermectin. Here's CNN's anchor, Anderson Cooper, on September 1st, 2021. More breaking news this evening. Joe Rogan, an extremely popular podcaster, announced on social media today that he has COVID. Rogan has said young, healthy people don't need to get vaccinated. In his statement on social media, Rogan said he has taken several therapeutics to recover. Turns out I got COVID. So we immediately threw the kitchen sink at it. All kinds of meds, monoclonal antibodies, uh, ivermectin, Z-Pak, prednisone, everything. One of those drugs he mentioned, ivermectin, is something more often used to deworm horses. CDC says there's no evidence it works on COVID. Its increased usage has only led to a substantial increase in overdoses after a push by some on the far right seeding vaccine misinformation. For those still trusting in the mainstream media, you probably thought this was the end to the ivermectin COVID-19 story. It is not. Here's a clip from Mickey Willis's short documentary on the drug. Of all the harmful misinformation spread over the past couple of years, one of the most disturbing false narratives was targeted at the Nobel Prize winning human medicine, ivermectin. What you're about to see will reveal the motive behind the smear campaign against one of the safest and most effective medicines of this era. A medicine that, according to the numerous top scientists I've interviewed this year, could have ended the pandemic before it began. So things are clearly bad, but they're being made even worse by people who have refused to take the vaccine and instead are swallowing horse paste. Horse dewormer. There's no clinical evidence that indicates that this works. It goes beyond that. We actually know that it doesn't work. Ivermectin 
is ineffective against COVID, but could put you in a coma. It can kill you. It can kill you. Turns out I got COVID. So we immediately threw the kitchen sink at it. All kinds of meds, monoclonal antibodies, uh, ivermectin. One of those drugs he mentioned, ivermectin, is something more often used to deworm horses. <laughs> we should talk about that. That bothered you. It should bother you, too. They're well, lying I, at your network about people taking human drugs versus drugs for it, veterinary... Calling it a horse dewormer is not a flattering thing. I get it's that. It's a lie. They, they, they shouldn't have said that. Why did they do that? I don't know. You're the medical guy over there. I, ivermectin can be a very effective medication. You are more likely to die from taking Tylenol than Ivermectin, yet the FDA calls this a dangerous horse deworming medicine. What initially led this was an FDA Twitter account that used the term y'all to express denigration of Ivermectin as a horse drug. I have horses. The truth is that the dose that's used for horses by body weight is the same dose that's recommended for humans, but it's formulated and manufactured to a quality standard that's very different. Lots of medicines are used in both animals and humans, so it's not a sufficient argument for somebody to say, it's a horse dewormer. Yesterday, the CDC put out a national advisory on this, warning the whole country against taking this drug, ivermectin, formulated for horses and cows and sheep. With that um, memo fired to every doctor, then suddenly me and all my early treatment colleagues around the country, we were faced with problems like we'd never had before. I work as an emergency room doctor. And not only an emergency room doctor, I teach advanced trauma life support, a course to other doctors that want to work in the emergency room on how to stabilize patients. We were being told there's nothing you can do. Just wait for Fauci and the FDA to acknowledge a vaccine that they were going to create. And there's no treatment, they said. Why would you want to decrease access to quality life-saving uh, measures for people who are fighting a worldwide pandemic? So it was the first time in history that we ever saw a doctor who could be prosecuted for using a generic safe and effective drug for the application that doctor thought was appropriate. My group of five, the core five of us ICU doctors, collectively were some of the most highly published doctors in the history of critical care medicine. Paul Marek is the most published practicing intensivist in the world. As we sit here today, I'm the most published person in my field in history. But when COVID-19 hit, my clinical an academic world was turned upside down. Twitter, in its wisdom, has decided to suspend the account of Dr. Robert Malone. Now, Robert Malone happens to be the inventor of the mRNA technology of making vaccines. His Twitter account has been suspended because he was allegedly spreading misinformation on COVID-19 vaccines. Let that sink in. We have made contributions to our field for decades. So when we find ourselves like dismissed, you know, and they'll do that to anyone, you're suddenly fringe. Touted as a miracle prevention and cure by far-right commentators and anti-vaxxers. I'm not, although I've been characterized as a right-wing proud boy, this is a bipartisan issue. And the physicians represented here are truly a bipartisan group. Our lives started going sideways professionally. Paul started getting numerous complaints against him that he's never had in his career. For the first time in my entire career, I could not be a doctor. I had to stand by idly. I had to stand by idly. 
watching these people die. From the FDA, Emergency Use Authorization of Medical Products and Related Authorities. For the FDA to issue an emergency use authorization, there must be no adequate, approved, and available alternative to the candidate product for diagnosing, preventing, or treating the disease or condition. If ivermectin were an effective treatment, the vaccines never would have gotten emergency use authorization in the U.S. If a viable therapeutic strategy existed for outpatients, then the logic supporting universal vaccination with largely experimental products is no longer supportable. The war on ivermectin is waged by very powerful forces with a lot of money. I mean, public health was built on an obsessive global vaccination policy, which ivermectin would have threatened. We've got Pfizer's third quarter earnings. Revenue, they're projecting to be 98 to $102 billion. Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna. Do you know how much profit they made from these shots? $1,000 every second from Wuhan virus vaccines. You're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars in geopolitical implications that would be significantly affected if the people had access to a safe and widely available medicine. This is an incredibly cheap drug. It's off-license, it's generic, it can be manufactured in huge amounts in India. Remarkably low cost. Merck's patent on ivermectin expired in 1996. In 2021, Merck released a statement claiming that ivermectin was not an effective treatment against COVID-19 and bizarrely claimed, quote, a concerning lack of safety data in the majority of studies. It was plenty safe for Merck to distribute widely when it was still under patent, but now they're claiming the safety record is insufficient. Folks need to understand that just because there is an article out there that asserts that something is false, recognize that those are paid. Every major media outlet in the United States shares at least one board member with at least one drug company. Let me put it in perspective for you. These board members wake up, they go to a meeting at Merck or Pfizer, and then they have their driver take them over to a meeting with NBC to decide what kind of programming that network is going to air. They can't be honest and objective about Big Pharma because Big Pharma pays their bills. In fact, one analysis claimed that nine out of the top ten drug makers spent more on marketing than they did on research. CNN Tonight. Brought to you by Pfizer. 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 The royal wedding is brought to you by, brought to you by, by Pfizer. Pfizer. If asked the question, did you know how much influence your former employer had on big media and so on, I had no idea. It is clear that the pharmaceutical industry has, has a great deal of sway on what goes on. If you can shape the message, um, then you can shape the world. And that's what they've done. When was the last time you turned on the news and ever got an update about how the rest of the world is handling COVID? A group of South African doctors has launched an urgent court application. They are seeking easier access to ivermectin. Globally, at least five countries want to use ivermectin to treat COVID-19 including India and Argentina. There are numerous concrete tests in medical journals around the world that ivermectin does work. 
the earliest reports we had, one of them we had in Peru, where they got into a good mode of using multi-drug treatment with an ivermectin-based approach that they were crushing their curves. And the president of the Tokyo Medical Association announced to all doctors during a summer surge that they should use ivermectin in the treatment. Within weeks, the hospitalization rates reported out of Japan were lower than at any other time in the pandemic. The real proof positive came when COVID-19 really hit hard in Mexico City. They finally, after lots of struggle, came with an ivermectin-based multidrug approach and literally cleared out their hospitals. And then we had reports all the way through that various states in India. In India, the government has been widely promoting the use of ivermectin. State leaders have just declared that Uttar Pradesh is now officially COVID-free. A region with nearly as many people as the entire United States is totally COVID-free. The miracle success of Uttar Pradesh, not one mention of ivermectin being used. In the countries that it has been used, in the countries where the studies are, the results are not good. They are overwhelming. They are well over 90% success rate. In the United States, it's a horse dewormer, it's horse paste, and only the illiterate, ignorant, and, and or unvaccinated use it. The key paradox is if you look at the mortality rate in the United States, one of the most highly funded medical care systems in the world. And what we find is the mortality in the United States is among the worst in the world. If you look at these innumerable failed policies, there's only one way to understand them. They are literally written by pharmaceutical companies. They can design trials to fail, to disprove the use of cheap medicines, and they can make things appear that they don't work. I sit as a non-voting member of the Active Committee for Drugs with NIH. I've seen the dynamics of what are going on with all those trials, which most of which have failed. Unfortunately, it's eminently possible to manipulate the outcomes of a clinical study. If you want a study to fail, that's dead easy. Now their fourth quote-unquote negative study of ivermectin in a major medical journal. And each time is a media frenzy. There was a systematic review looking at randomized controlled trials that have been done, and they found that there was no benefit for ivermectin in reducing mortality, death to COVID-19, no reduction in symptoms or duration of symptoms for COVID-19, so it does not work. People need to understand that academics have been threatened with losing their position and threatened with getting no further research grants if they speak out against the narrative. Guess why that is? Two-thirds of the world's non-commercial biological research is funded by just three bodies. The Wellcome Trust in the UK, the NIH, and specifically the NIAID under Tony Fauci, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. There's this pattern that is consistent with a concerted effort to mislead the public by withholding information using modern technology, media, censorship, really, let's call it what it is, thought control. He could actually control right. uh, exactly what people think. And that is, the, that is our you, job. Yeah. Starting to understand why COVID-19 catalyzed the Great Awakening, Anderson Cooper, Luke Rudkowski, and Udolf Kute. So then let's return to Anderson Cooper, the great-great-great-great-grandson of robber baron and railroad monopolist Cornelius Vanderbilt. Why would Anderson Cooper tell such a bold-faced lie about ivermectin? Whose interest does this man serve? In 2015, Luke Rudkowski of We Are Change had the courage to ask Cooper that exact question. 
Right. Hey Anderson, how you doing? Luke Radowski of WRC. Uh, I can't do anything. I just really quickly just wanted. Amazing to meet you. Thanks. Just wanted to know what you think of German reporter Off Ote, who said the CIA bribed him and extorted him to publish news stories. Have you ever heard of uh, Operation Mockingbird, Anderson? Operation Mockingbird, Mr. Anderson. It's a very serious question, um, Mr. Anderson. Do you have any comment on your knowledge of Operation Mockingbird? I'm sorry. So Anderson, what influence do you think the CIA has when it comes to mainstream media? Dude, you're being just ridiculous. I mean, it's time. I mean, it's time to ask really the hard questions because there is a Western pro-government slant when it comes to mainstream media. We see that when we see coverage of Putin and Assad, but not coverage of the human rights violations in Saudi Arabia. Have you ever heard of Operation Mockingbird? Operation Mockingbird. Have you ever heard of the declassified CIA program to manipulate the news and mainstream media? So Anderson Cooper has three security guards all around him now, making sure people can't engage in a conversation when it comes to very important matters, like the manipulation of our news by government officials. Are you signing about this because of your CIA past, Anderson? Is it because you were uh, in the CIA during college, Anderson? Can we get just one statement from you? <laughs> we just made Anderson Cooper hide in his car um, because he couldn't face questions about really important issues like him training to be a CIA officer when he was in college. And as we know, under Operation Mockingbird, CIA officials have infiltrated the mainstream media in the 60s. There's a German journalist, a very prominent one, Udolfsoff, and he came out just a few months ago and he said the CIA is still continuing this program, openly manipulating, openly writing the scripts for the mainstream media, as we see by their biased coverage. They're just another branch of the government, another mouthpiece of propaganda, and they can't even face up to real questions when asked eye to eye, man to man, and they just run around their private security guards and hide in their cars. Anderson Cooper has eight security guards here. Eight. Here's what Ulf Kote had to say in 2014, about two years before his sudden death of an alleged heart attack. Well, I, I've been a journalist for about 25 years, and I was educated to lie, to betray, and uh, not to tell the truth to the public. But seeing right now, within the last months, how, how far, um, how, how the German and American media tries to bring war to the people in Europe, to bring war to Russia, uh, this is a point of no return. And I, I stand, I'm going to stand up and say um, it is not right what I have done in the past uh, to, to manipulate people, to make propaganda against Russia, and it is not right what my colleagues do on, and have done in the past because they are bribed uh, to betray the people not only in Germany, all over Europe. The reason writing this book was that I, I am very fearful of a new war in Europe and I don't like to have this situation again because uh, war is not, never coming from itself. There is always people behind it to push for war. And this is not only politicians, this is journalists too. And uh, I just have written in the book how we have betrayed in the past our, um, our readers just to push for war. 
and uh, because I don't want this anymore. I'm fed up with this propaganda. We live in a banana republic and not in a democratic country where we have press freedom, where we have human rights. Uh, when we, if, if you see the German media, especially my colleagues who day by day write against the Russians who are in transatlantic organizations and who are supported by the United States to do so, well, m people like me, I, I, got, I, I became an honorary citizen of the state of Oklahoma in the United States. Just why? Just because I write pro-American. I wrote pro-American. Uh, I was supported by the Central Intelligence Agency, by the CIA. Why? Because I should be pro-American. I'm fed up with it. I don't want to do it anymore. And so I, I've just written a book not to earn money. No, it will cause a lot of trouble for me just to, to give the people in this country, in Germany, in Europe, and all over the world, just to give them a glimpse of a view what goes up behind the closed doors. What have I done for intelligence agencies? So please see, most of the journalists you see in foreign countries, they claim to be journalists, and uh, they, are, they might be journalists, European or American journalists, but uh, m many of them, like me in the past, are so-called non-official cover. That's what the Americans call that. I have been a non-official cover. Non-official cover means what? It means you, you too work for an intelligence agency. You help them if they want you to help them, but they will never, never, um, when, uh, when, you, when, you are, um, when you are locked, or uh, when, they find, when they find out that you are not only a journalist, but a spy too, um, they will never say, oh, this was one of our guys. They will not know you. That means non-official cover. So uh, I have helped them in several situations, and uh, I feel ashamed for that too now. Uh, like I feel ashamed that I have worked for a very recommended newspaper like the Frankfurter Allgemeine, because I was bribed by billionaires, I was bribed by the Americans uh, not to report exactly the truth. Germany is still a kind of a colony of the United States. Uh, you see that in many points, like the majority of the Germans don't want to have nukes uh, in our country, but we still have American nukes. So we are still a kind of a colony of the Americans. And being a colony, it is very easy to approach uh, young journalists uh, through what is very important here is transatlantic organizations. All journalists from really respected and recommended big German newspapers, magazines, radio stations, TV stations, they are all members uh, or guests of those big transatlantic organizations. And there, in, in these transatlantic organizations, you are approached to be pro-American, and there, there is nobody coming to you and saying, well, we are the Central Intelligence Agency, would you like to work for us? No, but this is not the case how it happens. What they do, these transatlantic organizations, is uh, they invite you, they invite you for seeing the United States. Uh, they pay for that, they pay all your expenses and everything. So uh, you, you are bribed, you get more and more corrupt because uh, they make you good contacts. You won't know that those good contacts are, let's say, non-official, 
non-official uh, covers or officially people working for Central Intelligence Agency or other American agencies. So you make friends. You think they are friends and you cooperate with them. They, tr they ask you, well, could you do me this favor? Could you do me that favor? And uh, so your brain more and more is brainwashed through these guys. Some sometimes the intelligence agencies, they come to your office and want you to write an article. I, I give you an example not from strange other journalists, from me myself. I've just forgotten the year. I just remember that uh, the German foreign intelligence, Bundesnachrichtendienst, it is just uh, um, a sister organization of the Central Intelligence Agency. It was founded by the American Intelligence Agency. So one, one day, Uh, the BND, this German Foreign Intelligence Agency, came to my office at the Frankfurter Allgemeine in Frankfurt. And they wanted me to write an article about Libya and about uh, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi. I had, I had absolutely no secret information uh, regarding Colonel Muammar Gaddafi and Libya. But they gave me all the, these secret informations and uh, they just wanted me to write, to, to sign the article with my name. I did that, uh, but it was an article uh, that was published in the Frankfurt Allgemeine that originally came from the uh, Bundesnachrichtendienst, from the German Foreign Intelligence Agency. So do you really think that this is journalism? Intelligence agencies writing articles? Nine years later, Europe is back at war. Hundreds of thousands killed or injured Millions of Ukrainian refugees displaced, over 100 billion from U.S. taxpayers drained, and Europe's energy grid is in crisis. One tough question we have to ask. What role did anti-Russian propaganda, orchestrated by Western intelligence agencies, play in the incitation, devastation, and prolonging of the Ukrainian-Russian proxy war? Almost two years after this disastrous war began, the Biden administration is demanding an additional $60 billion of U.S. taxpayers' dollars to prolong it. Hope those fancy new homes for the rich military and intelligence men north of Richmond are worth it. Back again to Anderson Cooper. Six months after Rudkowski's first interview, he confronted Vanderbilt Cooper a second time about Operation Mockingbird. Hey, Anderson, we had a great interview last time. I was wondering if you get a chance to look into Operation Mockingbird? I, you know what that is. You're talking about something what, from the 1950s, dude? 1970s official declassified program how the CIA infiltrated the mainstream media from the higher-ups. Right. It's declassified. I read about it in college, yes, I do. Thanks. Do you think it's something that could ha possibly be happening today? I have no comment for you. Thanks, dude. Why not? I mean, you didn't have any journalistic training except CIA training. I mean, yeah. But do you feel it's an issue of concern when it comes to kind of domestic American coverage of the world events? We see a lot of uh, coverage of Russia and a lot of coverage of Iran, but not Saudi Arabia. Why do you think human rights violations in Saudi Arabia are not covered as extensively as they should be? Have you been to Saudi Arabia? No, not yet. Okay, well, good luck. You go there and do it. I will, probably. <laughs>
Now, I don't want to be considered rude or mean when I told Anderson Cooper to his face that he received no journalism training at all except for training by the CIA, but that's actually stated on his own Wikipedia, and he admittedly was trained to be in the CIA when he was in college and received no journalism training. Anderson Cooper is not your friend. Rachel Maddow is not your friend. The talking heads and journalists at corporate media outlets are not your friends. The A-list celebrities who all have the exact same political views, in a slightly different style, yo, who are all represented by CIA-controlled talent agencies CAA and WME, they are not your friend. The CIA's presence has always been present, pervasive, and sinister in media and entertainment. And the same goes for Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley and the CIA. In 1972, Peter Schwartz joined the Stanford Research Institute, later SRI International, an early pioneer in computer technology and artificial intelligence. Schwartz rose in the ranks and later ran SRI's Strategic Environment Center at a time when SRI was hosting the CIA's notorious MKUltra program. SRI was also actively researching psychological warfare, including the use of propaganda, torture, and psychiatric chemicals to divide societies and impose centralized control. In 1993, Schwartz, alongside Stuart Brand and Nicholas Negroponte, was one of the drivers behind Wired Magazine, which became the central clearinghouse for mainstream news coverage of the emerging tech ecosystem. Coincidentally, it also developed a reputation as a clearinghouse for intelligence agency propaganda. Fast forward to 2010, and Schwartz went on to author a scenario report funded by the Rockefeller Foundation titled Scenarios for the Future of Technology and International Development. Schwartz's report advocated for global tyranny as the antidote for infectious disease. Coincidentally, Schwartz's chilling document predicted that citizens terrified by germs and orchestrated propaganda would willingly relinquish their civil and constitutional rights. Back to the early days of Silicon Valley. Prior to Wired Magazine, the Bay Area's original tech and culture magazine, Mondo 2000, had reflected the progressive, idealistic viewpoint of many of the pioneer tech innovators. In contrast, Wired, which appropriated Mondo 2000's look, feel, and many of its employees, glorified military and intelligence agency celebrities and corporate CEOs. CEOs who happened to be clients of Nicholas Negroponte's MIT lab. When he saw the first copy of Wired, Dr. Timothy Leary reportedly called it the CIA's answer to Mondo 2000. Wired's prominence snowballed at the same time that the CIA launched its notorious investment firm, InQtel, to infiltrate the tech industry and accelerate Silicon Valley's growth with, with easy investment funding and high-ticket government contracts. According to former CIA officer Kevin Shipp, Silicon Valley CEOs who accepted InQtel contracts would become some of the 4.8 million Americans subsequently pressured into signing CIA state secret contracts. These contracts subject signatories to 20-year prison sentences, property forfeitures, and other draconian reprisals imposed by secret courts for even minor violations of arbitrary provisions. This includes simply admitting to signing the contract. Per ship, once he signs that secret agreement, that Silicon Valley entrepreneur is now functionally the indentured servant of the agency. It binds him and his company for life, and the agreement itself is classified. 
Wired's seed funding came from MIT Media Lab founder Nicholas Negroponte, whose brother John Negroponte was the first director of national intelligence notorious for his support of Central American death squads. Wired's central function was to scrub every last particle of progressive thinking from reporting on the then-developing online world and to promote a pro-military, pro-corporate, pro-intelligence agency view within the digital media and technology community, according to Ken McCarthy, who lived and worked in San Francisco in the 1990s and organized the first conference on monetizing the web. Wired is also the fountainhead of the equally sinister movement Transhumanism, which advocates for the integration of human beings and machines. The movement's ancillary aims include extending the lifespans of key Silicon Valley billionaires indefinitely and liberating humanity from biological restraints using AI, novel therapies like stem cells, and nanobots, vaccination, and subdermal chips. Transhumanism in various forms has fervent supporters among the Silicon Valley elites. This includes C-suite titans at Microsoft, Facebook, Tesla's Elon Musk, Google engineering director Raymond Kurzweil, PayPal founder Peter Thiel, satellite and biotechnology titan Martin Rothblatt, and Bill Gates. NQTEL has made transhumanism one of the persistent themes of its long-term investment strategies. I'll now dive further into a handful of these tech titans to show how these firms are controlled by globalist-backed intelligence agencies and organized crime, just like the legacy corporate media. Microsoft, Bill Gates, and Paul Allen. Let's start with Microsoft co-founder and eugenicist Bill Gates, whose criminality I covered extensively in COVID-19 corruption, the destruction of public health, and ideas to regenerate it. Gates co-founded Microsoft with Paul Allen in 1975. Both men subsequently became contributors to the Jeffrey Epstein-funded Edge Foundation and attended its annual billionaire's dinner. I'll cover this organization's ties to Epstein intelligence and blackmail later in this outro. The following excerpt comes from Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s book, The Real Anthony Fauci, Bill Gates, Big Pharma, and the Global War on Democracy and Public Health, as narrated by Bruce Wagner. The Microsoft Monopoly Influence peddling fueled Bill Gates' drive to power from the outset. Gates came from a wealthy family. His great-grandfather made a fortune in banking and left Bill a trust fund worth millions in today's dollars. After dropping out of Harvard in 1975, Gates leveraged his passion for software engineering to launch Microsoft in an era when most Americans still used typewriters. At the time, his mother, Mary Gates, a prominent Seattle businesswoman, sat on the United Way board alongside then-IBM chairman John Opel. In 1980, IBM was looking to recruit a software concern to develop an operating system for its personal computer. Mary Gates persuaded Opel to take a chance on her son. That intervention propelled Gates's fledgling firm into the big leagues and made Gates a billionaire within two decades. Gates's closest boyhood friend and the Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen described Gates in his 2011 book Idea Man, a Memoir, as a sarcastic bully who in 1982 schemed to oust him and steal his share of their company. Back at work following a bout with cancer, an anemic Allen, depleted by radiation and chemotherapy, overheard Gates conniving with Microsoft's new manager, Steve Ballmer, to dilute Allen's stake. Allen recalled bursting in and shouting, This is unbelievable. It shows your true character once and for all. Declining Gates' $5 a share buyout offer, Allen left Microsoft with his 25% stake intact, becoming a billionaire when the company went public in 1986. You describe Bill Gates 
in very harsh terms. Um, you describe him as being quite abusive. I mean, it, it's not a pretty picture. And I felt like when I wrote it, I should just tell it like it happened uh, in an unvarnished way, warts and all. You know, here he is doing such great work. He's almost a saint now. Um, and it seems like an odd time to write an unflattering portrait of him. The timing had nothing to do with the many wonderful things that, that, that Bill has done. But the timing was because I wanted to see if I could do it uh, and uh, hopefully be alive to see it published. No wonder he was concerned. When he started the book in 2009, he had stage 4 lymphoma. Allen writes that Gates had a rare gift for programming. He was also the shrewder businessman. From the beginning, he demanded a larger share of the company, 60% and then more. But Allen says he was the one who pushed through the company's big early break, developing an operating system for IBM's first personal computer in 1980. Allen was miserable and felt he was being marginalized. And then things got a lot worse. He got cancer. One night he passed by Gates's office and overheard him talking with Steve Ballmer, who'd been hired to help run the company. What were they saying? They were basically talking about how they were planning to dilute my share down to almost nothing. And it was uh, you know, really a shocking and disheartening moment for me. And you were sick. I think I was still probably in the middle of radiation therapy. He burst in and interrupted them. He says they were trying to cut him out and rip him off. And of course, Steve came over to my house later that night to apologize. He did? He did. But Bill didn't come. No, he sent Steve. He sent Steve. It wasn't Steve. He sent Steve. Well, Steve's the one who came. In May 1998, the Department of Justice and 20 state attorneys general filed antitrust charges against Microsoft, accusing Gates' company of illegally thwarting efforts by consumers to install competing software on its Windows-based computers. The DOJ asked the federal trial court in Seattle to fine Gates a record million dollars a day for antitrust violations. Judge Thomas Penfield Jackson ruled that Microsoft had violated the 1890 Sherman Antitrust Act prohibitions outlawing monopolies and cartels, saying Microsoft placed an oppressive thumb on the scale of competitive fortune, thereby effectively guaranteeing its continued dominance in the relevant market. Judge Jackson ordered Microsoft to divide itself in halves and divest either its operating system or its software arm. An appeals court overturned that decision. In a settlement, the DOJ abandoned its drive to break up the company and Microsoft agreed to pay an anemic $800,000 fine and to share computing interfaces with competing firms. Aside from the financial cost, the litigation had blighted Gates's reputation. Judge Jackson complained that Gates's testimony was evasive and forgetful, and observed that he has a Napoleonic concept of himself and his company, an arrogance that derives from power and unalloyed success with no leavening hard experience, no reverses. The public had seen enough of the trial and of Gates's revealing depositions to share Judge Jackson's revulsion. An online group called SPOGGE gained widespread popularity. The acronym stands for Society for Preventing Gates from Getting Everything. Class action lawsuits filed in 2000 against the company for gross discrimination against African-American workers and for including racially charged messages in its software 
further blighted Gates's pockmarked public image. Legendary plaintiff's lawyer Willie Gary complained that Microsoft had a plantation mentality when it comes to treating African-American workers and observed that there are glass ceilings and walls for African-American workers at Microsoft. Gary settled the case for $97 million. Two years later, European regulators levied a $1.36 billion fine against Microsoft, the highest penalty in EU history. Gates reacted to snowballing popular disgust by lobbying Congress to slash the Justice Department's budget and by hiring an army of PR firms to soften his image as a ruthless and duplicitous King Baby Robber Baron. As part of a concerted offensive to recast his public persona, Gates and his wife formed a charity, the Children's Vaccine Program, with an impressive $100 million donation. Listen to how CNN's Leslie Stahl, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, fawns over Gates in her interview with Paul Allen. He's almost a saint now, she says. Isn't that just the best damn propaganda Gates's PR money could buy? Unfortunately, Gates is the inversion of a saint, at least to anyone who isn't a Satanist. In his book, Kennedy goes on to discuss Gates's affinity for population reduction and sterilization following in the footsteps of the Rockefeller Foundation. Population and Sterilization Vaccines Early 20th century America saw the snowballing popularity of eugenics, a racist pseudoscience that aspired to eliminate human beings deemed unfit in favor of the Nordic stereotypes. Twenty-seven state governments enshrined elements of the philosophy as official policy by enacting forced sterilization and segregation laws and marriage restrictions. In 1909, California became the third state to adopt laws requiring sterilization of intellectually challenged Americans. Ultimately, eugenics practitioners coercively sterilized some 60,000 Americans. John D. Rockefeller Jr.'s keen interest in eugenics colored his passion for population control. The oil baron Scion joined the American Eugenics Society and served as trustee of the Bureau of Social Hygiene. The Rockefeller Foundation dispatched hefty donations in the 1920s and early 30s to hundreds of German researchers, including those conducting Hitler's notorious twins studies at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Anthropology, Human Heredity, and Eugenics in Berlin. The Rockefeller Foundation curtailed donations to Nazi Germany's medical institutions before Pearl Harbor, but Rockefeller's success promoting the eugenics movement had already captivated Adolf Hitler. Now that we know the laws of heredity, Hitler told a fellow Nazi, it is possible to a large extent to prevent unhealthy and severely handicapped beings from coming into the world. I have studied with interest the laws of several American states concerning prevention of reproduction by people whose progeny would, in all probability, be of no value or be injurious to the racial stock. In the early 1950s, the Rockefeller Foundation conducted fertility studies in India that historian Matthew Connolly characterizes as an example of American social science at its most hubristic. In one of the collaborations with the Harvard School of Public Health and India's Ministry of Health, the Rockefeller Foundation studied 8,000 tribal people in seven villages in the Kana section of Punjab to determine whether contraceptive tablets could dramatically reduce fertility rates. According to Lindsay McGoey, the villagers were treated like lab specimens subjected to monthly questioning, but otherwise ignored. Rockefeller's researchers did not initially inform the Punjabis that their pills would prevent women from bearing children. 
McGoey describes the villagers as shocked, dismayed, and resentful to learn that the medication they credulously consumed was intended to render them infertile. Some were incensed by the effort to limit their future progeny. Over the next two decades, the Rockefeller Foundation conducted frequent anti-fertility programs in India and elsewhere, earning the growing animosity of physicians, human rights activists, and poverty specialists who criticized the Foundation for focusing on population growth while ignoring the realities of persistent poverty that makes large families so indispensable to Indian and African villagers. Today, McGoey adds, the Gates Foundation is pouring money into experimental medical trials that are facing criticism, similar to those directed at the Rockefeller Foundation's Kanaz study. Like earlier philanthropic foundations, the Gates Foundation has the financial and political clout to intervene in foreign nations with relative impunity and to remain unfazed when the experiments it funds go awry. Gates's fetish for reducing population is a family pedigree. His father, Bill Gates Sr., was a prominent corporate lawyer and civic leader in Seattle with a lifelong obsession for population control. Gates Sr. sat on the National Board of Planned Parenthood, a neo-progressive organization founded in 1916 by the racist eugenicist Margaret Sanger to promote birth control and sterilization and to purge human waste and create a race of thoroughbreds. Sanger said she hoped to purify the gene pool by eliminating the unfit persons with disabilities, preventing such persons from reproducing by surgical sterilization or other means. In 1939, Sanger created and directed the racist Negro Project, which strategically co-opted black ministers in leadership roles to promote contraceptives to their congregations. Sanger stated in a letter to her eugenics colleague Clarence Gamble of Procter & Gamble, we do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population, and the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. When I was growing up, my parents were always involved in various volunteer things, Gates told Bill Moyers in 2003. My dad was head of Planned Parenthood, and it was very controversial to be involved with that. Overpopulation, Gates' father told Salon in a 2015 interview, was an interest he's had since he was a kid. In 1994, the Elder Gates formed the William H. Gates Foundation, the family's first, focused on reproductive and child health in the developing world. Population control was an enduring preoccupation of his son's philanthropy from its inception. Gates has made a long parade of public statements and investments that reflect his deep dread of overpopulation. He describes himself as an admirer and proponent of the population doomsayer Paul Ehrlich, author of The Population Bomb, whom Gates describes as the world's most prominent environmental Cassandra, meaning a prophet who accurately predicts misfortune or disaster. By the way, I share Gates's fear that if humanity persists in juxtaposing exponential population expansion atop linear resource growth, we will all land in a nightmarish Malthusian dystopia. I'm troubled, however, by his apparent comfort in using coercive and mendacious tactics to trick poor people into dangerous and unwanted contraceptive programs. The proven paths to zero population growth are the mitigation of poverty and empowerment of women. Women with alternative career opportunities seldom choose the heavy and hazardous burden of serial maternity. Virtually every nation with a stable middle class has fertility below replacement rates, but Gates's careless public statements and the programs that he habitually funds suggests that Gates has involved himself 
in sketchy stealth campaigns to sterilize dark-skinned and marginalized women without their informed consent, including by the deceptive use of dangerous sterility vaccines. On February 20, 2010, less than one month after he famously committed $10 billion to the WHO, Bill Gates suggested in his Innovating to Zero TED Talk in Long Beach, California, that reducing world population growth could be done in part with new vaccines. Uh, first, we've got population. Now, the world today has 6.8 billion people. That's headed up to about 9 billion. Now, if we do a really great job on new vaccines, health care, reproductive health services, we could lower that by perhaps 10 or 15 percent. Gates's defenders and the Gates-subsidized fact-checker organizations scoff at critics who interpret literally Gates's 2010 statement that he hoped to use vaccines to reduce population. They explain that Gates intended by this inartful construct to suggest that life-saving vaccines will allow more infants to survive to adulthood, thereby reassuring impoverished parents that they need not have so many children. So I try and follow a lot of conspiracy theory narratives. Where people started cottoning on to this idea that you were behind some sort of global agenda, I think was from a TED talk you did where a single sort of line you talked about population and how vaccines played into that got taken out of context in a pretty major way and has kind of haunted you ever since. And like paraphrasing, it was basically a phrase saying, hey, if we can get people vaccinated, we can decrease the population. That's the quote that spreads around. Yeah, that's a counterintuitive thing, which is that all societies that are healthy, where children grow up and survive, are societies where there's not significant population growth. The place that you have population growth is in very poor countries where over 10% of the children are dying below the age of five. And amazingly, as you bring in vaccines or better nutrition, anything to improve the health, parents choose to have less children because they're sort of optimizing that they want at least several of their children to survive to take care of them in their old age. And so, in fact, in an uncertain environment, you know, there's no, like, pension payment. It's really your kids yeah. are your only hope for your old age. So what we've seen in every country is that as you improve health, very quickly, parents more than offset those extra lives, and therefore the population growth goes down. And so today in the world... The only places with population growth are these very poor countries where we haven't done a good job protecting the children. That completely makes sense and is not scary at all. But this hypothesis rests on the sketchy premise that his vaccines reduce child mortality, a proposition that Gates has never demonstrated and that current science does not support. His peculiar choice of words naturally fueled speculation that he was engaging in a premeditated campaign to use vaccines to sterilize women. His questionable antics in promoting anti-fertility drugs and WHO's widespread use of stealth sterility vaccines credibly fuel such sentiments. In COVID-19 Corruption, I described how Gates settled the Microsoft lawsuits in 2000. At that point, the Gates Foundation, or BMGF, announced a nine-year, $500 million plan to fund AIDS vaccine development through Gates' International AIDS Vaccine Initiative, IAVI, the predecessor organization to the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, GAVI. Gates' foundation, founded in 1994, expanded Gates' wealth and power by leveraging the operational philosophy of philanthrocapitalism, which I'll cover shortly. 
Bill and Melinda Gates donated $36 billion of Microsoft stock to the BMGF between 1994 and 2020. Very early on, Gates created a separate entity, Bill Gates and Investments, BGI, which manages his personal wealth in the foundation's corpus. Gates strategically targets BMGF's charitable gifts to give him control of the international health and agricultural agencies and the media, allowing him to dictate global health and food policies so as to increase profitability of the large multinationals in which he and his foundation hold large investment positions. As Kennedy highlights, following such tactics, the Gates Foundation has given away some $54.8 billion since 1994, but instead of depleting his wealth, those gifts have magnified it. Strategic philanthropizing increased the Gates Foundation's capital corpus to $49.8 billion by 2019. Moreover, Gates' personal net worth grew from $63 billion in 2000 to $133.6 billion today. Gates' wealth expanded by $23 billion just during the 2020 lockdowns that he and Dr. Fauci played key roles in orchestrating. End quote. In addition to Gates' bioterrorism and pandemic authoritarianism, Gates has a long, sordid history with human trafficker and corrupt intelligence asset Jeffrey Epstein. After flight logs from Epstein's 2019 arrest showed Bill Gates as a passenger on the Lolita Express, mainstream media provided a limited hangout. The legacy media claims Gates and Epstein met, first met in 2011 and remains shockingly uninterested in understanding the nature of their relationship. Thankfully, real investigative journalism is alive, as exemplified by Whitney Webb in her books One Nation Under Blackmail, the sordid union between intelligence and crime that gave rise to Jeffrey Epstein, Volumes 1 and 2. As I covered at length in Who is Hillary Rodham Clinton, there is now an abundance of evidence that Epstein acted on behalf of intelligence, likely the CIA and Mossad. This criminal faction of intelligence engages in blackmail of elites by compromising them in horrible acts, including the rape, torture, and murder of children. This is not conspiracy theory, this is conspiracy fact, and we have to wrap our heads around the full implications of this blackmail network. Webb highlights that instead of Gates meeting Epstein in 2011, a 2001 Evening Standard article stated, Epstein had made many millions out of his business links with the likes of Bill Gates, Donald Trump, and Ohio billionaire Leslie Wexner, whose trust he runs. Here's an excerpt from Webb's book narrated by Grace Noble. The excerpt details Epstein, Gates, and a certain big shot from the Democratic Party. A Tale of Two Bills While he courted top scientists and tech moguls, including a few alleged eugenicists, Epstein, as discussed in the previous chapter, had become intimately involved in planning key aspects of major philanthropies that would later become major drivers of global health policy in the developing world, the Clinton Foundation, and later, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It is worth exploring the ties between the philanthropic endeavors of Bill Gates and Bill Clinton in the early 2000s, given Epstein's and Ghislaine Maxwell's ties to the Clinton Foundation and the Clinton Global Initiative during that period. Despite tensions arising from the Clinton administration's pursuit of Microsoft's monopoly in the late 1990s, the Gates and Clinton relationship had thawed by April 2000, when Gates attended the White House Conference on the New Economy. Attendees besides Gates included close Epstein associate Lynn Forrester, now Lynn Forrester de Rothschild, and then-Treasury Secretary Larry Summers, whose ties to Epstein were discussed in Chapter 14. Another attendee was White House Chief of Staff Thomas Mac McLarty, whose special assistant Mark Middleton had met with Epstein numerous times at the Clinton White House. Another participant in the conference was Janet Yellen, Biden's current Secretary of the Treasury. 
Gates spoke at a conference panel entitled Closing the Global Divide, Health, Education, and Technology. He discussed how the mapping of the human genome would result in a new era of technological breakthroughs and discussed the need to offer Internet access to everyone to close the digital divide and allow the new Internet-based economy to take shape. At the time, Gates was backing a company, along with American telecom billionaire Craig McCaw, that hoped to establish a global Internet service provider monopoly through a network of low-orbit satellites. That company, Teledesic, shut down between 2002 and 2003 and is credited as being the inspiration for Elon Musk's Starlink. Bill Clinton and Bill Gates entered the world of philanthropy around the same time, with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation launching in 2000 and the Clinton Foundation following in 2001. Not only that, but Wired described the two foundations as being at the forefront of a new era in philanthropy, in which decisions, often referred to as investments, are made with the strategic precision demanded of business and government, then painstakingly tracked to gauge their success. Yet, critics and supporters alike, as noted in the previous chapter, challenged that these foundations engaged in philanthropy and asserted that calling them such was causing the rapid deconstruction of the accepted term. The Huffington Post further noted that the Clinton Global Initiative, part of the Clinton Foundation, the Gates Foundation, and a few similar organizations all point in the direction of blurring the boundaries between philanthropy, business, and nonprofits. It is worth noting that several of Epstein's own philanthropic vehicles, such as the Jeffrey Epstein VI Foundation, were also created just as this new era in philanthropy was beginning. Years after creating their foundations, Gates and Clinton have discussed how they have long bonded over their shared mission of normalizing this new model of philanthropy. Gates spoke to Wired in 2013 about their forays into developing regions and cites the close partnerships between their organizations. In that interview, Gates revealed that he had met Clinton before he had become president, stating, I knew him before he was president, I knew him when he was president, and I know him now that he's not president. Also in that interview, Clinton stated that after he left the White House, he sought to focus on two specific things. The first is the Clinton Health Access Initiative, CHI, which he stated exists thanks largely to funding from the Gates Foundation. And the second is the Clinton Global Initiative, CGI, where I try to build a global network of people to do their own thing. Ira Magaziner, who flew on Epstein's plane alongside Clinton and Doug Band, was the key figure behind the creation of CHI and served as its CEO. The Clinton Health Access Initiative first received an $11 million donation from the Gates Foundation in 2009. Since then, the Gates Foundation has donated more than $497 million to CHI. CHI was initially founded in 2002 with the mission of tackling HIV-AIDS globally through strong government relationships and addressing market inefficiencies. As mentioned in the previous chapter, Epstein was credited with helping shape Clinton's HIV-AIDS policies during that period suggesting he was involved with the creation of CHI, as well as the Clinton Global Initiative. Notably, the Gates Foundation's significant donations began not long after CHI's expansion into malaria diagnostics and treatment. In 2011, Tachi Yamada, the former president of the Gates Foundation's Global Health Program, joined CHI's board alongside Chelsea Clinton. As previously noted in the last chapter, Epstein's defense lawyers argued in court in 2007 that Epstein had been part of the original group that conceived of the Clinton Global Initiative, which was first launched in 2005. The Gates Foundation gave the CGI a total of $2.5 million between 2012 and 2013, 
in addition to its massive donations to the Chai and an additional $35 million to the Clinton Foundation itself. In addition to the Gates Foundation donations, Gates's Microsoft has been intimately involved in other philanthropic projects backed by Clinton. In addition to these ties, Hillary Clinton established a partnership between the Clinton Foundation and the Gates Foundation in 2014 as part of the Clinton's No Ceilings Initiative. That partnership sought to gather and analyze data about the status of women and girls' participation around the world and involved the two foundations working with leading technology partners to collect these data and compile them. Months before the partnership was announced, Gates and Epstein met for dinner and discussed the Gates Foundation and philanthropy, according to the New York Times. During Hillary Clinton's unsuccessful run for president in 2016, both Bill and Melinda Gates were on her short list as potential options for vice president. In addition, Epstein attempted to become involved in the Gates Foundation directly, as seen by his efforts to convince the Gates Foundation to partner with J.P. Morgan on a multi-billion dollar global health charitable fund that would have resulted in hefty fees paid out to Epstein, who was very involved with J.P. Morgan at the time. Though that fund never materialized, Epstein and Gates did discuss Epstein becoming involved in Gates's philanthropic efforts. Prior to this proposal of a more direct role for Epstein, he had previously worked indirectly through Gates, as he had directed Gates to donate to at least one organization, $2 million in 2014 to the MIT Media Lab. Other Gates and Epstein meetings that took place between 2013 and 2014 have further underscored the importance Epstein apparently held in the world of billionaire philanthropy, with Gates reportedly claiming that Epstein was his ticket to winning a Nobel Prize. Norwegian media, however, reported in October 2020 that Gates and Epstein had met the Nobel Committee chair, which failed to make a splash in international media at the time. It is worth asking if Epstein managed to arrange such meetings with other individuals who also coveted Nobel Prizes, and if any such individuals later received those prizes. If Epstein had such connections, it is unlikely that he would have used them only once in the case of Bill Gates, given the vastness of his network, particularly in the tech and science worlds. The year 2013 is also when Bill and Melinda Gates together met with Epstein at his New York residence, after which Melinda allegedly began asking her then-husband to distance himself from Epstein. While the stated reason for this, in the wake of their divorce announcement in 2021, was that Melinda was put off by Epstein's past and his persona, it could potentially be related to other concerns about Melinda's reputation and that of the foundation that shares her name. Indeed, 2013 was also the year that the Gates's mansion systems engineer, Rick Allen Jones, began to be investigated by Seattle police for his child porn and child rape video collection, which contained over 6,000 images and videos. Despite the gravity of his crimes, when Jones was arrested at the Gates's mansion a year later, he was not jailed after his arrest, but was merely ordered to stay away from children, according to local media reports. From Melinda's perspective, this scandal, combined with Bill Gates's growing association with then-convicted pedophile Jeffrey Epstein, may have posed a major threat to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's reputation well before Epstein's 2019 arrest. Here's how squirrely little Gates responded when confronted about his ties to Epstein. The New York Times and Wall Street Journal both reported in recent months that uh, Melinda was concerned about a relationship you had with Jeffrey Epstein, who at the time you met him in 2011, uh, had been already convicted of soliciting prostitution from a minor. The Times reported she hired divorce attorneys around the time in October 2019 when that contact with Epstein became public. 
Can you explain your relationship with Epstein? Did you have any concerns? Uh, was there ever any concerns you had about it? Oh, certainly. Uh, you know, I had several dinners with him, uh, you know, hoping that uh, what he said about getting billions of philanthropy for global health uh, through uh, contacts that he had might emerge. You know, when it looked like that wasn't a real thing, that relationship ended. But it was a huge mistake uh, to spend time with him, to give him the credibility of, you know, being there. There you know, were lots of others uh, in that same situation, but I, I made a, a mistake. And that's it. Not a single additional question from Vanderbilt Cooper about Gates's relationship with Epstein. In another Gates-sponsored propaganda piece, he sat down with Judy Woodruff of PBS NewsHour. Woodruff is, coincidentally, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. It was reported at that time uh, that you had a number of meetings with Jeffrey Epstein, who, when you met him 10 years ago, he was convicted of soliciting prostitution from minors. What did you know about him when you were meeting with him, as you've said yourself, uh, in the hopes of raising money? Uh you know, I had dinners with him. Uh, I regret doing that. He had relationships with uh, people he said, you know, would give to global health, which is a uh, interest I have. You know, not nearly enough philanthropy goes in that direction. Uh, you know, those meetings were were a mistake. They didn't result in uh, what he purported, and I cut them off. You know, that goes back a long time ago now, uh, there's, you know, so there's nothing new on that. It was reported that you continue to meet with him over several years, um, and that, in other words, a number of meetings. Um, what did you do when you found out about his background? Well, and, you know, I've said I regretted having those dinners, uh, and there's nothing, absolutely nothing new on that. Is there a lesson for you, for... Anyone else looking looking at this? Well, he's dead. So, uh, you know, in general, you always have to be careful. When Woodruff pressed Gates about his relationship with Epstein, she asked if there's a lesson for anyone else looking looking at this. To which Gates replies, well, he's dead. So, in general, you always have to be careful. I could go on for days about Gates's corruption, but you get the point. If he looks like a sociopath, talks like a sociopath, and acts like a sociopath... He's probably a sociopath. Once you break that veil of disillusionment, you can accept how badly we were all hosed by Gates, Fauci, and the rest of the COVID cabal throughout the pandemic, and start to understand how deeply the tentacles of intelligence and organized crime have penetrated Silicon Valley. Which brings us to the next social media giant, LinkedIn. LinkedIn, Reid Hoffman, and the Bilderberg Group. The big tech oligopoly consolidated further when in 2016, Gates' Microsoft acquired social media giant LinkedIn for $26.2 billion. LinkedIn's founder, Reid Hoffman, made over $2.8 billion in the transaction. Hoffman now sits on the Microsoft board of directors, alongside individuals including Hugh Johnston, CFO of media giant Disney, Mark Mason, CFO of banking giant City, Charles Scharf, CEO of banking giant Wells Fargo, Penny Pritzker, one of the largest funders of the Democratic Party establishment, and Emma Walmsley, CEO of pharma giant GlaxoSmithKline. But I'm sure Microsoft would be careful to avoid any potential conflicts of interest with their board, never abusing their influence to manipulate the flow of information, right? 
Reid Hoffman, another one of the largest donors to the Democratic Party, is also a known associate of Jeffrey Epstein. Two years before the sale to Microsoft, Hoffman made a trip to Epstein's island in the Caribbean, Little St. James, also known as Pedophile Island, where Epstein and his associates were accused of trafficking and sexually abusing underage girls. Hoffman had also been scheduled for a second trip to Epstein Island and to stay overnight at Epstein's New York townhouse, both in 2014. Hoffman also invited Epstein to a dinner in Palo Alto, California in 2015 with other Silicon Valley leaders. Reed Hoffman is coincidentally a frequent attendee of the Bilderberg Group's annual meetings. The Bilderberg Group is an elitist, transatlantic organization which I referenced earlier. But what exactly goes on at the Bilderberg meetings, and why is one's attendance at these events an indicator of their involvement in criminal conspiracy? Here's a clip from investigative reporter Daniel Eschelin's documentary on the Bilderberg, starting with Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands' opening address in 1954. Gentlemen, may I bid you all welcome here and say one word before I start speaking. Uh, I am starting speaking, and that is the uh, translation. Button number two is French and number three is English. You may wonder why I have asked you to come here. I have in mind a completely frank and open exchange of views and this is ensured to you, and it is essential for our success. There is no verbatim quotation of anybody, and there is no press, so you are quite free to let yourselves go, if I may say. Well, the real reason for, for the interference of uh, the CIA with Bilderberg was actually the Cold War. It was coming up at that time, and they tried to to use all the institutes they could get to, uh, well, to steer the public opinion in, the, well, in, in Europe and actually also in the rest of the world where they had influence. And Bilderberg was, uh, was one of them, and that was the reason that they financed uh, Bilderberg, the first meeting. Not totally, but for a, for a great part, anyway. What today is called the Bilderberg Group, you could take it way, way, way back to about you know, the period just after the Fourth Crusade, 1200, 1204. And what today is called the Bilderberg Group, or Bilderberg Society, back then already existed, and it was called the Venetian Black Nobility. No, they're absolutely a continuation of Venice, because basically you had a migration of the Venetian system of oligarchical power over Europe into the Low Countries, in fact, into the Netherlands, where Bilderberg was really founded. And it's an absolute continuity of the Venetian system of power. And in fact, if you do some tracing of some of the family lineages, you'll find in many instances the Tornantoxis family, for example, migrated from Venice into Northern Europe and still remain a mainstay of the Bilderberg oligarchical structures. You have a Bilderberg meeting taking place once a year, beginning in 1954. The first meeting took place at the Bilderberg Hotel in the Netherlands. And the host of that conference was Prince Bernhardt, the Dutch royal consort, who was a card-carrying member of the Nazi apparatus during uh, the Second World War period. The people who actually come to Bilderberg meetings, they're the people who can move forward the agenda of these societies. So you have president of the International Monetary Fund, president of the World Bank, president of the European Central Bank, 
of the Federal Reserve Board. You have key presidents and prime ministers and all these individuals on the political level, also on the empresarial level and also in the media. And they all work together with people in the military. They all work together with representatives of the banking cartels. And again, if you're a corporation, you don't need to control every person in the company. You just need to control one person who controls the policy of the entire corporation. You can say the same thing about countries. You don't need to control the entire country. You just need to control enough key decision makers, be it president, be it prime minister, be it key senators and congressmen, people in the Federal Reserve, people in the European Central Bank, and people in the European Commission. You control them, and through them you control the rest. Every year Bilderberg has a gathering. They'll bring together one to 200 people, many of whom make up the core of the transatlantic financial and political oligarchy. And they'll bring together uh, a core group of powerful individuals, government people, the media, finance, and prospective young recruits, people in the political realm who are up and coming and who are going to be seduced and controlled by these oligarchical interests. And very often, these meetings serve as a kind of a testing ground for whether or not certain people will be advanced in their political careers, including a number of individuals who've been elected president of the United States have been put through this kind of Bilderberg finishing school process. In 1968, uh, George Ball uh, and the Bilderbergers met and uh, determined that they had to restructure the entire world along the lines of a corporation. They decided that the idea of the nation-state was outmoded, it was archaic, it was standing in their way, and that therefore they wanted to have what they called a world company based upon the idea of a corporate uh, identity. Well, what this is actually is part of what's called globalization. You had in the 60s and then continuing in an expanding form in the 70s and 80s a, a rash of mergers which uh, corporations merged, uh, agricultural corporations merged, the financial institutions merged, uh, and you, you had a general takeover of the world economy by these huge mega firms. Uh, the corporate uh, banking mergers tended to control the corporate industrial mergers and the agricultural mergers, so you had basically a world run by this financial uh, these massive agri uh, financial institutions. The concept is One World Company Limited, corporations that have a hell of a lot more power than any government on the planet. And you're seeing it right now that governments don't govern, presidents don't do anything other than do what people who put them in power tell them to do. And so the idea is that all of these corporations, the Goldman Sachs of this world, the JP Morgans, etc., they are the key people in all key institutions around the world. And it's through them that the power base is exercised. So again, it's not one world government, it's one world company, limited corporations with a lot more power than any government on the planet. And in fact, this was discussed at the Bilderberg Conference in 1968, where George Ball, Undersecretary for Economic Affairs with JFK and Johnson, he said, and I quote, loosely quote, how can we create corporations that can actually give orders to governments? And this is what you have today. Role of the Club of Rome back in the 1970s 
was to try to popularize the big lie that man could not continue to develop because resources were supposedly limited. And they used a ridiculous modernized version of the old argument of Malthus and Aristotle to simply state that based on mathematical equations, we would exhaust the resources. Well, yes, there was another reason, and that is that the bailout was a scam, a fraud. It was uh, under the guise of saving banking institutions, which they saved temporarily. They were effectively taking unpayable debt, huge quantities of unpayable debt, and transferring it from private corporations to governments. Uh, this didn't make the debt any more payable. They basically absorbed huge quantities of worthless paper, speculative derivative paper, which could not be paid off in any period of time anyway, i.e. the governments became bankrupt. Now you see this in Europe uh, over the last years, where each country is being forced to do the same thing that was done in the U.S., take on the, the massive debts of these banks and effectively leaving them bankrupt. What you have is the growth of corporate dictatorships under the banking institutions that run the governments, corporate fascism. And in fact, you see the world increasingly coming under the control of corporate fascist uh, governments under the control of the banking institutions. Look at Google, Apple, Microsoft, IBM. These Bilderberg-affiliated megacorporations form an integral part of the United States security apparatus. Behind these technologies, enormous streams of capital are being expended and, more importantly, invested behind the scenes. Now we're at a point where that entire system is at a breaking point where it's hopelessly bankrupt, the debt is impossible to pay, the derivatives, which are purely speculative, unregulated gambling bets on top of the debt bubble itself, is estimated at one and a half quadrillion dollars, which is a multiplier of even the most optimistic idea of global GDP that's completely off the charts. So this entire system is doomed, and we're quite frankly at a point now where it would be no surprise if on any given day you woke up and found out that the entire transatlantic financial system had just evaporated. Well, a lot of people think that the British Empire no longer exists, but this is an illusion. Just ask yourself, why is it that after the big financial crash of 2007, 2008, there was absolutely nothing done by the G20 or anybody else to re-regulate the banking system? And they kept quantitative easing, they kept zero interest rate policy, which is really expropriating the majority of the population. And now we are in front of an even bigger crash than 2008, and there are no so-called tools anymore to do anything about it. So uh, the reason is that the oligarchy controls what is called globalization. And globalization is really only another word another notion for the British Empire. It is the combination of central banks, investment banks, hedge funds, private equity funds, insurance and reinsurance firms who control what is generally called the global financial system. And in reality, the EU is only the continental sub-entity of that empire.
Well, the, the, the British Empire knows that in the long run it cannot survive in a world which is based on science and technology and development. And therefore their policy is to stop that kind of technology and development. Uh, that's why they target nation states. That's why, for instance, that they are adamant against the BRICS and the emergence of the BRICS, which is nations which have the strength and the power and the commitment and the mission to building nations through science and technology. That has to be stopped in their view. Therefore, their target is the idea of the nation state itself. Destroy nation states in order to preserve and maintain the power of the empire. There is absolutely a plan to depopulate the world, and you simply have to listen to or read the writings of people like Prince Philip of Great Britain, who has stated explicitly that we should reduce the population of the world from seven billion people down to one billion. He has stated very charmingly that he would like to be reincarnated as a virus to try to reduce the world's population. The media, which forms part of this conspiracy, they've been able to convince the people that unless something is on the cover of the New York Times, the Washington Post, Le Monde, uh, The Economist, uh, Wall Street Journal, it doesn't exist, which is why so many times people say to me, if what you say is true and it is shocking, why is it not on the cover of the New York Times? Because again, the New York Times is of this world. They form part of the Bilderberg organization. They form part of all these other societies. They're part of the elite. Their job is not to tell the truth, but to sell a particular vision of reality which the elitists need to move their agenda forward. Well, some chosen uh, uh, journalists are, uh, are admitted to the Bilderberg uh, conference, but they are not allowed to, to write about it, what they hear and what they say, and it's actually co completely forbidden. And they, they don't swear an oath, but they just promise that they are not allowed to. And that's why, uh, actually, you never see in the papers, even in the big newspapers, uh, good uh, articles about the Bilderberg meetings and what is happening there, because uh, journalists who are, uh, well, allowed to enter, they are forbidden to write about. Security was tight today at the Grove Hotel in this leafy area north of London. 140 members of the global elite arrived here for a top-secret, hush-hush, off-the-record conference in the English countryside. How's this for a guest list? The head of the International Monetary Fund, former Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner, the heads of Amazon.com, Google, and BP Oil, former General and CIA Director David Petraeus, and what's a top-secret cabal of puppet masters without Henry Kissinger? All of them came here today for the Bilderberg Conference. That's Bilderberg, not Bilderberg. Participants are tight-lipped about discussions other than to say topics will range from the economy to jobs to U.S. foreign policy, what the organizers call megatrends and the major issues facing the world. Reporters and outsiders are not allowed in and everything is off the record. Organizers say that so participants can take time to listen, reflect, and gather insights. And there's some very, very heavy points. Artificial intelligence, that's the uh, future of humanity, transhumanism, the change from humanity to transhumanity to posthumanity. 
cybersecurity. That's one of the key issues which the Bilderbergers have been talking about for a very long time. And that has to do with controlling internet, obviously, chemical weapons threats, current economic issues, which is, you know, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. This is the, uh, the information which he sent me, and I'm just downloading, you know, all the stuff on the subject of, of America. And uh, in the first two pages of this extract, seven-page extract, I'm seeing, this is like the fifth time, I'm seeing perpetual war, okay, uh, multi-generational threat. Now, uh, give me a second just to see what else is there. Now, one of the things about perpetual wars, perpetual wars require perpetual funding. Non-ending war, non-ending funding, which means that you throw as much money as you want into a particular situation, which is this, you know, war on terror. How long? We don't know. Forever. How much money? As much as you need. So the idea is, again, you control uh, both sides of the equation. You control the left and the right. You control the, you know, the, the, the dialogue through the media. And then you push the idea of perpetual war. That's a very interesting question because there are two ways of talking about immortality. We all die. No one has, so far has discussed, discovered a, a method by which we can live eternally as in our biological form. So therefore, the meaning of the human mind and the human body may not be quite the same thing. For example, people like Einstein, for example, who over a century ago defined matter-antimatter progress, which we're now going into today. So some people are immortal because of the consequences of their having existed. And the best we can do as human beings, which we, no other animal can do, is we can continue to be immortal in our participation in the development of humanity and the development of our solar system. So immortality means one thing. It means either the consequences of your having lived, the benefits for mankind of your having lived, one way or the other, as a poet or as a scientist or whatever. You've contributed something to the wealth of humanity, and you are, in that sense, immortal. Or you can be a poor slug who doesn't think, who has no consequence, no reason to exist, who just lives and dies. And that's the choice. Yes, we can win this war, but the first step necessary for actually winning is to know what the war is. The war is not against merely financial interests or military powers or even groups as powerful as the Bilderberger Group. It is a war against what has been called powers and principalities. It's a war against a concept of man which is evil. It's the concept of man that we are nothing other than animals. It is an idea which says that human beings do not have the capability of a creative spark, that we do not in fact have free will, that we therefore cannot act morally or immorally, we just simply do whatever our desires say. And it is that concept of man which finds expressions today in things like the Bilderberg Group and in the global financial system which is based on speculation, usury, and the destruction of populations. Well-known attendees of the Bilderberg meeting 
many of whom are also known Jeffrey Epstein associates, include King Charles III of the UK, Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, UK, Queen Beatrix of the Netherlands, Prince Bernhardt of the Netherlands, King Willem Alexander of the Netherlands, Pierre Trudeau, former Prime Minister of Canada and father of current Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Emmanuel Macron, President of France, Angela Merkel, German Chancellor, Klaus Schwab, Executive Chairman of the World Economic Forum, Mario Draghi, President of the European Central Bank, Tony Blair, former UK Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, former UK Prime Minister, Edward Heath, former UK Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, former UK Prime Minister, David Cameron, former UK Prime Minister, William Burns, current CIA Director, Hillary Clinton, former First Lady and Secretary of State, Timothy Geithner, former Treasury Secretary, Henry Kissinger, former Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice, former Secretary of State, David Petraeus, former Director of the CIA, Robert Rubin, co-chair of the Council on Foreign Relations, George Schultz, former Secretary of State, Larry Summers, former Director of the National Economic Council, Paul Volcker, former Chairman of the Federal Reserve, Lindsey Graham, Republican Senator from South Carolina, John Kerry, former Secretary of State, Bill Clinton, former President of the United States, David Rockefeller Sr., former Chairman of Chase Manhattan Bank, Ben Bernanke, former Chairman of the Board of the Federal Reserve, Sam Altman, co-chairman of OpenAI. Jeff Bezos, founder and CEO of Amazon. Albert Borla, chairman and CEO of Pfizer. Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft. Donald Graham, CEO of the Washington Post. H.J. Hines, former CEO of Hines. Reid Hoffman, co-founder of LinkedIn. Alex Karp, CEO of Palantir Technologies. Henry Kravis, co-CEO of KKR. Jared Kushner, senior advisor to President Trump. Satya Nadella, CEO of Microsoft. Eric Schmidt, executive chairman of Alphabet, parent company of Google. Peter Thiel, co-founder of Palantir. Charlie Rose, executive editor and anchor, Charlie Rose. George Stephanopoulos, ABC News chief Washington correspondent. Bill Moyers, journalist and political commentator. Craig Mundy, senior advisor to the CEO at Microsoft. Edmund Adolf de Rothschild, founder of Edmund de Rothschild Group. Robert Zolik, former president of the World Bank. Needless to say, the public deserves to know what's been planned and executed at these meetings. There is clear evidence these elites have engaged in a long-range plan to bring about one-world government and mass depopulation, and it needs to end now. Back to Reid Hoffman. Another sign that this oligarch is full of shit came when news leaked that Hoffman, a leading funder of Democratic politicians, donated 250000 to Republican Warhawk presidential candidate Nikki Haley. Here's her primary competitor, Vivek Ramaswamy, calling out the corruption between these two strange bedfellows. Go back, though, to Nikki Haley's comment from earlier that she is somehow not responding to the will of these donors. Nikki, you were bankrupt when you left the U.N. After you left the U.N., you became a military contractor. You actually started joining service on the board of Boeing, whose back you scratched for a very long time and then gave foreign multinational speeches like Hillary Clinton is, and now you're a multimillionaire. That math does not add up. It adds up to the fact that you are corrupt. And when I said they were bought and paid for, I meant the Republican establishment, not the Democratic establishment. Now you have Reid Hoffman, the person who's effectively George Soros Jr., funding lawsuits across this country against 
Donald Trump to keep him off the ballot, funding left-wing causes. We discovered this week that he is one of Nikki Haley's largest supporters. Larry Fink, the king of the woke industrial complex, the ESG movement, the CEO of BlackRock, the most powerful company in the world, now supporting Nikki Haley. And to say that doesn't affect her is false because it's after that meeting later that day that she says that every American needs to be doxxed by having their ID, their government-issued ID, tied to what they say on the internet. The second thing is every person on social media should be verified by their name. So I think that this is far more corrupt than I even imagined when I entered politics. The clear implication here is that Hoffman donated to Haley's campaign because he represents a member of the Uniparty. The shadow government that operates for the benefit of oligarchs like Reid Hoffman, Larry Fink, and George Soros, not for you and me. On Substack, I've included the largest shareholders of the tech giants discussed in this outro. Microsoft, Facebook, Palantir, and Google. Coincidentally, Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street are three of the four largest in each company. Ramaswamy, on the other hand, demonstrates time and again that he is a staunch defender of our right to self-governance. So please, regardless of your political affiliation, follow Vivek in what he has to say. I have the utmost confidence Ramaswamy will be a leader in the self-governance revolution currently taking place worldwide. Now to wrap up the discussion on Reid Hoffman. Hoffman is a member of the PayPal Mafia, which I'll discuss shortly, and also a general partner at Greylock Ventures. Like his PayPal mafioso, Peter Thiel of Founders Fund, Hoffman's position at a top-tier venture capital fund affords him disproportionate influence in shaping the tech industry. This includes directly by deciding which startups receive funding, and indirectly through thought leadership, speaking panels, podcast interviews, and of course, ESG and DEI initiatives. Back in 2005, Hoffman became one of the first investors to back Mark Zuckerberg, giving him a disproportionate influence on the big tech giant Facebook. DARPA, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, and CSAM. The Defense and Intelligence Agencies had a beachhead in the tech industry since its birth through DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. DARPA created the internet by building the ARPANET grid in 1969. DARPA also serves as the Pentagon's angel investor and venture fund akin to Incutel's role with the CIA. In addition to the internet, DARPA developed GPS, stealth bombers, weather satellites, pilotless drones, and the M16 rifle. DARPA was also one of the largest funders of gain-of-function biochemicals research, spending more than even Tony Fauci's NIH in some years. Starting in 2013, DARPA also financed key technologies for the Moderna vaccine. Back in 2002, DARPA set off a firestorm with human rights advocates by creating a comprehensive data mining system under President Reagan's National Security Advisor, Admiral John Poindexter. Public protests resulted in DARPA scuttling the project, but critics have accused the agency of using the technology to help launch Facebook. Coincidentally, DARPA shut down its Facebook-like project, LifeLog, a venture that involved MIT contractors, the very same month, February of 2004, that Mark Zuckerberg started Facebook. Zuckerberg started Facebook just a 30 minutes walk up the Charles River in Cambridge, Massachusetts at Harvard University. In 2010, DARPA's director, Dr. Regina Dugan, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, walked through the revolving door to the private sector, joining Google as an executive. She transferred to Facebook in 2016, where she ran a mysterious project called Building 8. In 2018, she moved again to run Welcome Leap, a health technology breakthrough innovation project of Welcome Trust. 
Her career moves demonstrate the incestuous ties between big tech, big pharma, and the military and intelligence agencies. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit, corrupt lifelong bureaucrat Tony Fauci worked hand-in-hand with mainstream and social media companies to censor views that challenged the official narrative. Facebook, Google, and the television networks purged doctors and scientists who reported pathogenic priming and censored reports about the waves of other vaccine injuries. Email traffic shows that Dr. Fauci colluded directly with Mark Zuckerberg and the other social media platforms to censor doctors who reported vaccine failures, harms, and deaths, to deplatform public health advocates, and to evict and muzzle patients who reported their own injuries. Independent journalist Kinkoa the Great highlights the following 12 examples of Zuckerberg slash Facebook engaging in censorship and other corrupt actions since the start of the pandemic. Number one. Mark Zuckerberg privately told Facebook execs to be cautious about mRNA vaccines because we just don't know the long-term side effects of basically modifying people's DNA and RNA. He then censored scientists, doctors, and mRNA vaccine-injured individuals. Last week, Facebook announced they are, quote, expanding their efforts to remove false claims on Facebook and Instagram about COVID-19 vaccines. Let's take a look at Facebook's most updated COVID-19 vaccine policy. The real kicker is right here in the policy where Facebook says it would remove any content that, quote, claims the COVID-19 vaccine changes people's DNA. Well, we just got a new leaked tape from Zuckerberg himself, the CEO of Facebook, basically violating his own code of conduct. He would be censored on the platform today for what he said. I share some caution on this because um, we just don't know the long-term side effects of, of basically modifying people's um, DNA and RNA. So when Zuckerberg said, quote, basically the vaccine is modifying people's DNA, it seems pretty clear modifying is synonymous with changing. Again, Zuckerberg would be banned from Facebook for saying this. Number two, on March 15th, 2020, Mark Zuckerberg emailed Tony Fauci and said, I also wanted to share a few ideas of ways we could help you get your message out. Zuckerberg proceeded to censor scientists, doctors, and citizens who opposed Fauci's school closures, lockdowns, and mandates. Number three, Mark Zuckerberg banned numerous vaccine injury support groups with hundreds of thousands of members because Facebook classified vaccine injuries as malinformation or potentially factual information that still should be censored because it might foster vaccine hesitancy. Number four, Mark Zuckerberg banned George Hu's vaccine injury support group after Hu, a software engineer who created Washington's COVID vaccine website, developed tinnitus from the vaccine. Some people think that this is misinformation, but this is the truth. It is actually happening. Number five, Mark Zuckerberg told Joe Rogan that he censored the Hunter Biden laptop story leading up to the 2020 election based on a general request from the FBI. This is tantamount to rigging a U.S. presidential election that was determined by only 44,000 votes in three swing states. How do you guys handle things when they're a, a big news item that's controversial? Like there was a lot of attention on Twitter during the election because of the Hunter Biden laptop story. The New yeah, York we Post. Have that too. Yeah, so you guys censored that as well? So we took a different path than Twitter. Um, I mean, basically the background here is the FBI, I think, basically came to us, some, some folks on our team, and was like, hey, um, just so you know, like, you should be on high alert. There was, the, we, we thought that there was a lot of Russian propaganda in the 2016 election. We have it on notice that basically there's about to be some kind of dump of, of um, uh, uh, that's similar to that. 
So just be vigilant. So our protocol is different from Twitter's. What Twitter did is they said, you can't share this at all. Um, we didn't do that. What, what we do is we have, um, if something is reported to us as potentially um, misinformation, important misinformation, we, we also have this third-party fact-checking program because we don't want to be deciding what's true and false. And for the, I think it was five or seven days when it was basically being um, being determined whether it was false, um, the distribution on Facebook was decreased, but people were still allowed to share it. So you could still share it. You could still consume it. So when um, you say the distribution has decreased, in, it, it got shared. It, how does that work? It basically the ranking in newsfeed was a little bit less. So fewer people saw it than would have otherwise. So it definitely by what percentage? I, I don't know off the top of my head, but it's 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 meaningful. But I mean, but basically, a um, a lot of people were still able to share it. We got a lot of complaints that that was the case. Um, you know, obviously this is a hyper political issue. So depending on what side of the political spectrum, you either think we didn't censor it enough or censored it way too much. But right. but we weren't sort of as black and white about it as as Twitter. We just kind of thought, hey, look, if if the FBI, which you know, I still view as a legitimate institution in this country, it's like very professional law enforcement. They come to us and tell us that we need to be on guard about something Then I want to take that seriously. Did they specifically say you need to be on guard about that story? I, I no, I, I don't remember if it was that specifically, but it was it basically fit the pattern. Number six, Mark Zuckerberg gave four hundred million dollars in funding to CTCL, a nonprofit that then gave the money to government election offices with strings attached, which amounted to Democrat get out the vote efforts, widespread mail in voting, ballot curing, and influence over election policies. Number seven. Numerous books, documentaries, and investigations have shed light on how Mark Zuckerberg provided $400 million in funding for Dropbox ballot operations nationwide, covered the salaries of election officials, and fundamentally influenced the outcome of the 2020 election. Did fraud change the results of the 2020 presidential election? With strong opinions on both sides of that question, Americans may never agree. But even if, for the sake of argument, not one ballot was fraudulent or miscounted, there are still reasons the 2020 election should concern you. Using the coronavirus pandemic as an excuse, hundreds of millions of private dollars from one billionaire flooded into governmental election offices, disproportionately benefiting Democrats. In 2020, Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg and his wife contributed $350 million to the Center for Tech and Civic Life, or CTCL, money that was then given to local boards of election nationwide. CTCL claimed its grants were nonpartisan and simply aimed at underwriting safe elections during a pandemic. But was that really CTCL's agenda? In March 2020, former Obama campaign manager David Plouffe was employed by Zuckerberg and his wife, Priscilla Chan. That month, he published a book in which he wrote that the 2020 election would be a, quote, block-by-block -block street fight. So Democrats needed to turn out their urban base, particularly in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan. That is exactly what CTCL did. In Wisconsin, Zuckerberg and CTCL spent approximately $47 per voter in known Democratic districts, and only about $7 per voter in Republican districts. In the Democratic-leaning Philadelphia suburb of Delaware County, Zuckerberg's funding helped provide one ballot drop box for every 4,000 voters. But in the state's known Republican counties, there was only one drop box for every 72,000 voters. CTCL provided Philadelphia itself with a massive $10 million, 
an 81% hike in the city election office's typical annual budget, which was overwhelmingly used to fund mail-in voting. And the election's results showed those mail-in votes massively favored Democrats. CTCL's explicit goal was to, quote, encourage and increase absentee voting, despite the recognized security issues that surround absentee voting. In Muskegon, Michigan, CTCL's funding was used to pay for a media campaign to encourage voters to mail in their ballots. In Lansing, Michigan, CTCL funds were used to mail out absentee ballot applications to every remaining registered voter who had not already requested a mail-in ballot. There's no question Zuckerberg and CTCL's strategy affected the election results. Across the battleground state of Georgia, nine of the 10 counties with the greatest shifts toward the Democratic presidential candidate between 2016 and 2020 received CTCL money. The IRS allows nonprofits like CTCL to register voters and help get out the vote, but they aren't allowed to help just one party. Some things shouldn't be done by nonprofits on either side of the aisle. What Zuckerberg and CTCL did may not be fraud, but under the guise of pandemic relief, private dollars made voting a lot easier for Democrats while doing much less for Republicans and risking the security of our election for everyone. Number eight, in Texas, Ohio, Nevada, Minnesota, Georgia, Florida, Arizona, and Pennsylvania, 90% of Mark Zuckerberg's CTCL funds went to Democrat counties funding get-out-the-vote operations, ballot drop boxes, and granting access to state voter files for left-leaning organizations. In total, $130.4 million went to Democratic counties, 90%, while only $13.8 million, 10%, went to GOP counties. Number nine. Mark Zuckerberg then spied on the private messages of Americans who questioned the integrity of the 2020 election and reported them to the FBI. Facebook reported Americans who expressed anti-government sentiments to the FBI's domestic terrorism unit. Number 10. Mark Zuckerberg admitted that a lot of the information he censored during COVID turned out to be true. However, Facebook has not made any commitment to altering its policies and will persist in censoring content on behalf of the U.S. government and Zuckerberg's whims. There's also complicated questions of uh, what is and isn't harm, what is and isn't misinformation. So this Absolute. is one of the things that Wikipedia has also uh, tried to face. Uh, yeah. I remember asking um, GPT about whether the virus leaked from a lab or not, and the answer provided was a very nuanced one and uh, a well-cited one, almost, dare I say, well-thought-out one, uh, balanced. I would hate for that nuance to be lost through the process of moderation. Uh, Wikipedia does a good job on that particular thing too. But from pressures from governments and institutions, it's you could see some of that nuance and depth of uh, information, facts, and wisdom be lost. Absolutely. And that's a, that's a scary thing. Some of the magic, some of the edges, the rough edges might be lost in the process of moderation of AI systems. Uh, so how do you get that right? I, I really agree with what you're pushing on. I mean, the, the core, I think the core shape of the problem is that there are some harms that I think everyone agrees are bad, right? So you know, sexual exploitation of children, right? I, like you're not going to get many people who, who think that that type of thing should be allowed on any service, right? And that's something that we, and we face and try to push off the, you know, as, as, as much as possible today, um, you know, terrorism, um, inciting violence, right? It's like we went through a bunch of these, these types of, of harms before. Um, 
but then I do think that you get to a set of harms where there is more social debate around it. Mm-hmm. Um, so misinformation, I think, is um, has been a really tricky one because there are things that are kind of obviously false, right, that are maybe factual, um, but may not be harmful. Um, so it's like, all right, are you going to censor someone for just being wrong? It's, you know, if, if there's no kind of harm implication of what they're doing, I think that that's, there's, there's a bunch of real kind of issues and challenges there. But then I think that there are other places where it is, um, just take some of the stuff around COVID earlier on in the pandemic where, um, there were, you know, real health implications, but there hadn't been time to fully vet a bunch of the scientific assumptions. And, you know, unfortunately, I think a lot of the kind of establishment on that, um, you know, kind of waffled on a bunch of facts and, you know, asked for a bunch of things to be censored that in retrospect ended up being, you know, more debatable or, or true. And that stuff is really tough, right? And really undermines trust in, in, in that. And um, so I, I do think that the questions around how to manage that are, are, are very nuanced. Number 11. In fact, Mark Zuckerberg hired one of the CIA's most senior agents, 2019, and placed him in charge of deciding what Americans see and don't see on Facebook. Facebook's entire trust and safety department is filled with former FBI and CIA agents. Number 12. In summary, Mark Zuckerberg launches a Twitter ripoff with mass censorship after he has already lost the public's trust. He stifled scientific criticism that he himself expressed, reported Americans' private messages to the FBI, and aggressively censored factual information. Last year, investigative journalist Alan McLeod published an article titled Meet the Ex-CIA Agents Deciding Facebook's Content Policy. In this article, McLeod highlights how Facebook has recruited dozens of individuals from the CIA, as well as many more from other agencies including the FBI and DOD. These hires are primarily in highly political, sensitive sectors such as trust, security, and content moderation, to the point where some feel it's become difficult to see where the U.S. national security state ends and Facebook begins. It's within this department where decisions are made about what content is allowed, what will be promoted, and who or what will be suppressed. These decisions affect what news and information billions of people across the world see every day. Therefore, those in charge of the algorithms hold far more power and influence than even those editors at the largest news outlets. McLeod previously highlighted how Chinese Communist Party-backed social media and social engineering giant TikTok is similarly flooded with NATO officials, Twitter abounded with former FBI agents, and Reddit's director of policy is a former war planner for the NATO think tank, the Atlantic Council. But McLeod states, the sheer scale of infiltration of Facebook blows these away. It's also quite interesting how Zuckerberg, in that interview with Lex Friedman, highlights how child sexual exploitation content is harmful and should be censored. I agree with his perspective that child sexual abuse material, CSAM, is one of the few categories of content that is not protected by the First Amendment. CSAM therefore should be eradicated, consistent with federal law prohibiting its production, advertisement, transportation, distribution, receipt, sale, access with intent to view, and possession. And yet, why is it then that Facebook's parent company, Meta Platforms, which also owns tech giants Instagram and WhatsApp, readily censors true election-impacting information, but fails to prevent CSAM on its platforms? As was highlighted by an investigation by the Wall Street Journal, a legacy media outlet owned by Rupert Murdoch's News Corp, 
Instagram helps to connect and promote a vast network of accounts openly devoted to the commission and purchase of underage sex content. The journal's report stated, Pedophiles have long used the internet, but unlike the forums and file transfer services that cater to people who have interest in illicit content, Instagram doesn't merely host these activities. Its algorithms promote them. Instagram connects pedophiles and guides them to content sellers via recommendation systems that excel at linking those who share niche interests, the journal and academic researchers found. The researchers found that Instagram enabled people to search explicit hashtags such as pedohore and preteen sex and connect them to accounts that used the terms to advertise child sex material for sale. The pedophilic accounts on Instagram mix brazenness with superficial efforts to veil their activity, researchers found. Certain emojis function as a kind of code, such as an image of a map, shorthand for minor attracted person, or one of cheese pizza, which shares its initials with child pornography. End quote. The journal's coverage of the dark side of Meta's algorithms went on to highlight how pervasive CSAM was on Facebook, too. According to David Erb, a former engineering director at Facebook running a community integrity team focused on detecting harmful user behavior, when the team began studying inappropriate interactions between adults and minors, it determined that the most frequent way adults found children to prey upon was Facebook's people-you-may-know algorithm. It was a hundred times worse than any of us expected. There were millions of pedophiles targeting tens of millions of children, said Erb. The state of New Mexico earlier this month filed a civil lawsuit against Meta, alleging that Meta has allowed Facebook and Instagram to become a marketplace for predators in search of children upon whom to prey. The suit says Chief Executive Mark Zuckerberg is personally responsible for product decisions that aggravated risks to children on Meta's platforms. Why do we notice this disturbing pattern, again and again, of tech and media oligarchs who cave to the dictates of the national security state while also permitting content that facilitates human trafficking and child sexual abuse. Censorship leads to control of speech. Control of speech leads to control of conscious thought. Control of conscious thought leads to enslavement. The censorship industrial complex therefore goes hand in hand with the surveillance state. And in part two of this outro, we return to discuss the company that has been perhaps more instrumental in establishing a permanent police state than any other, Palantir.